0: This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com incubator.
1: The episodes in this mini-series on thermoregulation are kindly sponsored by GE Healthcare. As a leading global medical technology innovator, GE Healthcare is dedicated to enabling clinicians to make faster, more informed decisions through intelligent devices, data analytics, applications, and services. Its maternal infant care division designs solutions to meet the needs of providers, families, and patients to support care that can help send moms and babies home healthy. To find out more, visit clinicalview.gehealthcare.com. welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator podcast. We are here today for the first episode of our special series focusing on thermal regulation. Daphna, first of all, how are you?
0: Uh, I'm doing great. This, uh, this mini series has been a long time in planning, and so it's nice to finally roll it out.
1: Very excited about our first episode. You're still uh, under the weather, and yeah. uh, but you're, you're getting I'm better, getting so we're it. happy. That's good. <laughs> and uh, we are starting this uh, mini-series with um, a super interesting guest. We have with us today Dr. John Ibrahim, who is a neonatologist. He's also an assistant professor of pediatric in the newborn medicine division at uh, UPMC, For those of you outside the US, UPMC is a very prestigious institution. It is the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, John, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today.
2: Thank you guys for inviting me
1: um you have published articles on so many different topics and and you are almost like a savant of neonatology you're 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 juggling so many different uh uh pathologies but today we wanted to talk a little bit about uh thermoregulation maybe in the context of of history global health and the and the delivery room i think what's very interesting is that thermal regulation of the newborn especially after birth is something that since the dawn of time has been the in, on the minds of the doctors, of the OBs, of the parents. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what have you read about in terms of the historical aspect of, of keeping babies warm after birth?
2: Yes, yes. Um, I think thermoregulation is one of the topics that, despite a lot of publications, has been something that not a lot of people pay attention to. There's a lot of rigorous, kind of a rigorous uh, guidelines that have been published by a lot of organizations. But interestingly, if you read the history, there's been a lot of thought about uh, incubators, uh, particularly in the past and with Coney Island, uh, incubators and boxes and uh, a very fascinating history that you read about it. Uh, a lot of vulgar practices also that I've read about with uh, being followed in neonatal resuscitation and uh, how this all evolved from these practices, people trying to really warm these babies, but inadvertently causing harm or the benefit until the current evolution of incubators and now going to the intricities like after delivery and the plastic bags and the radiant warm mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and the warm towels, but uh, warm, pre-warmed incubators. But it's very interesting uh, stuff. I think if you go back and look at the Coney Island uh, incubators and how these babies were placed in, the, in these incubators for people to come around and take a look at them. And uh, they used to call them to call these premature babies weaklings because they thought that when these babies are born premature, they kind of have some sort of an abnormality and they were not, uh, all of the time, they were not resuscitated too.
1: So, and I think that's very interesting because you read some of these. We had on the podcast, Don Raffle, who wrote a whole book about the Coney Island, uh, I guess, NICU if you want to call it, but where Dr. Cooney was keeping babies in incubators. And, and... The idea that the incubators were such an innovative technology, and all they pretty much did was just try to keep the baby warm. And when you read the history of the incubators, it's interesting how it took them a little bit of time to figure out how to get them to the right temperature because sometimes they were overheating them, and sometimes they were not heating them properly. But uh, she was telling us stories of like uh, parents who had a baby born preterm, and they would like put them in the shoebox with like the feathers, and some some parents putting the baby in the oven to try to keep them warm. So. It's so interesting that uh, we are still talking about thermal regulation, and it's probably one of the first aspects of neonatal care that we ever even thought
0: of. Episode 14, if anybody wants to take a look at our interview with Don Raffle,
2: And to your point, Ben and Daphna, it's impressive how the parents acknowledged that these babies mm. kept warm and they were trying to keep them warm. So they got this concept a long time ago, but they were not able to figure out a safe way to do it.
0: I think you brought up uh, another interesting point and, and we feel that way even in our high tech units is that we know about thermoregulation. We learn about it, but then it kind of falls by the wayside. And I think that's interesting in terms of the historical perspective where at some point in time, all we had to offer was keeping babies warm that was the mainstay of of neonatal care and then figuring out how to how to feed them um so where along the history do you feel like we just got so comfortable that sometimes we even forget you know that you know the, the especially here in the United States the incubator does its job the thermal mattress does its job but sometimes when things are not going well, we've we've forgotten that we have to check and see what what the temperature is doing.
2: I mean, definitely, I think during like with our daily routine and the number of deliveries that we we attend, uh, sometimes it becomes like second nature. All these pre-warmed incubator, pre-warmed towels, pre-warmed IV fluids, uh, plastic bags in the delivery room, but. I think the, the the thing that you're pointing out too is how can we track these changes? How can we make sure that these changes are working? Because you not only talk about hypothermia, some of these interventions, if combined together, can lead to hyperthermia, which is another problem that we need to keep an eye on. But um, despite, I mean, some of the surveys that came out recently said that despite these strong recommendations about practices to prevent hypothermia neonates. Not a lot of units, particularly even in the United States, uh, follow these. And I can give you an example of the delivery room temperature. It's been a hot topic, right, with obstetrics and gynecology and uh, our colleagues. So, yeah, right. They talk, we talk about how we can we need to adjust the delivery room temperature, but and where should it be, right? No one knows, but there is a lot of papers published about well, 23 Celsius, 23 to 25, more than 26. Um, a lot of talks about it, but it's been a hot topic, and uh, it, it, it also points to the controversy about uh, thermoregulation, also a lot of mixed data about like t- long-term outcomes with thermoregulation. Does it really have a benefit? Does it really don't have a benefit? I mean, the Elcor uh, published two meta-analyses. One of them pointed to decreased mortality, and the most recent one that just came a few months ago said that they couldn't really ascertain if there is long-term uh benefits from thermoregulation. So again, it's a lot of controversy, but I agree with you. Sometimes we become so comfortable that we lose track and don't follow up these interventions and make sure they're doing the job they're supposed to do.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a great follow-up to the discussion we were just having about history, where I think in, um, in one of the first uh, books about neonatology, like The Nursling by Pierre Boudin in France, right? he he basically said that the, the principle aspect of, of taking care of a baby is really to just keep the baby warm, give the baby breast milk and nurture the baby. And these, these were the only three things that were assigned to do to a baby. And then it turned out what turned out, there wasn't really nothing else. And then our care of the newborn has gotten, as you guys said, so much more sophisticated. And we have almost forgot about keeping thermal regulation, and so I think there's, there's several interesting things about thermal regulation because it's definitely something that we will need to be discussing when it comes to the preterm infants, but it is also something that affects the term infant very much. And you mentioned the ambient temperature of the room in the, in the EOR or in the delivery suite. But, um, can you tell us a little bit about? What is especially for full-term babies? Because these also tend to be shrubbed off. It's like, okay, full term is gonna be he's gonna be okay. But um what are the the importance and the ramifications of keeping a baby normal thermic and what happens if we if we don't keep a baby normal thermic at a full-term gestation?
2: That's a very interesting question. And I agree with you, Ben. I mean there's a lot of data published about preterm infants, but not much about the term baby. It's like a term baby doesn't really need to be warm or no one really pays attention to that. But I think there's been uh, ramifications about um, short-term, at least, outcomes with these babies. There there was some reports about increased mortality with hypothermia in infants in general or newborns. Um, Obviously, this increases with preterm infants. So, um, and also respiratory distress and hypoxemia, particularly, is uh, one of the other uh, things you need to worry about in a term baby exposed to hypothermia at birth. And sometimes these babies, when they're exposed to hypothermia, they don't transition well. And it's something that obviously we see a lot, particularly in babies born in the community and transferred to a bigger center.
1: So then in terms of the full-term infants, I think in the US, at least, or at least in maybe in other developed countries, this is um, something that is pretty well established and I think we tend to lose focus of the fact that um, normal thermia for full-term infant is still a very much a struggle outside the U S and in specifically in low and middle income countries. Have you had any experience with regulation of temperature for these infants um, in the, on the global uh, health uh, s- stage?
2: I actually trained did my
1: medical school back in
2: Egypt and um, I did have uh, several of my rotations, I was working in the intensive care units in uh, one of the biggest hospitals in, in the capital, Cairo. And uh, it's very fascinating because uh, this concept of thermoregulation we did not have. Every baby born was essentially bundle given to the mom. But what really impressed me and really fascinated me is how these moms impressed this concept of skin to skin. And breastfeeding, obviously, uh, we never, as physicians, paid so much attention. We were never educated about it. We were never paying attention to it. We never knew the associations with impaired, like short-term morbidities. But these moms were always keen about getting these babies to to skin-to-skin. I do remember at one point we have incubators that came from the U.S. and they were parked outside the NICU. And uh, I came outside the NICU and was like, what, "What is this? What's this?" And they were like, "Oh." So I was like, okay, so what, what does it do? And no one knew nothing about it. No, no one knew how to work it. No one knew how to keep it in maintenance. Uh, but they were just shipped, and uh, we never used them in the NICU. So it's, it's, I think it has evolved over time by the time I left. Um, but it was some of the very impressive and uh, things. I mean, also incubators, as you know, has evolved over time from the par- from Coney Island until now and uh, have been, been more and more uh, better at keeping these babies warm.
1: I think this is a point that I, I definitely want to ask you a follow-up question because hearing this story, I think it's fascinating. And I am I'm guess I'm wondering if you had to describe how has your understanding of thermoregulation evolved as you were a trainee, like you were a student and to where you are now, I'm just curious, how has your perception evolved over time?
2: I can tell you very well. I so much appreciate skin to skin. Uh, And uh, I believe that it's a very strong mechanism for thermoregulation in term babies. Something that I didn't really pay attention to when I was doing my training back in my home country. And um, I don't think a lot of physicians paid attention to, but these moms who did not have a lot of education were always keen about asking us to deliver the baby to the bed so they can do the skin to skin and enjoy these moments. Uh, When I came here, during my residency training, uh, I started appreciating the importance of thermoregulation, but not in that depth. Uh, and in my fellowship, I was so focused on the big things, uh, fellowship training, and uh, never really paid attention to the small uh, stuff like thermoregulation, delivery room, like always seeking all the big pathologies and getting comfortable with the difficult cases, but not paying attention to that aspect. Then when I transitioned as a junior faculty here and I was tasked with the mission of establishing a golden hour, a small baby, a golden hour program in our unit, I started getting more kind of um Atten- paying more attention to importance of thermoregulation and reading about it. And I was like, wow, that's a big issue. That's something that has a lot of interventions, a lot of studies. I mean, the fact that the l has published two meta-analysis and systematic reviews about it says how much the scientific bodies here in the United States pay attention to it. But it's also a hot topic. And it's an area of, uh, there's a lot of resistance sometimes to to certain aspects of it. So...
1: Very nice pun saying a hot topic on this a hot, uh, subject. A hot
0: topic, but I think you bring up such an extraordinary point because in low and middle income countries, low resource settings, I mean, they are very adept at using skin to skin care for thermoregulation as a, as a primary modality of, of keeping the babies warm. And I find that here, even in the highest resource settings, the shiniest ICUs, the fanciest ICUs, we struggle at keeping babies warm during skin-to-skin care. And I wonder where the disconnect is there. I also feel like the parents that I interact with, I mean, they know the temperature of their baby. Like, they know it. Um, they tell us, like, I feel like my baby's warm today. I feel like my baby's cool today. I-, I feel like parents are very in tune, especially with temperature for their babies. And, and the you know, the parent who's doing skin-to-skin often knows when the baby's getting cold before anybody else does. And so, you know, I wonder where the disconnect is there. And I think you just have such an interesting perspective on you know, wh- where we're, where we're missing a step there between our fancy technology um, and interfacing with parents in this way.
2: I think it's all about training and it's very impressive when, when you go to delivery and NICU is called to delivery and this is a term baby that transitions well, we still bring him to the bed and do our exam. Meanwhile, we can leave him on, uh, do skin to skin and to just do our exam there because clearly the communicate doing well. Uh, I think it's more about, uh, is spreading awareness and, and the culture of importance of skin to skin for these moms. actually also it's, it's pre- these are precious moments after delivery but also for keeping these babies warm um, it's actually one of the things like i just was reading a survey that mentioned that like the majority of the units in africa keep their temp- their ambient temperature more than 26 celsius while only 50% of the units in the us keep the temperature temperatures more than 23 Celsius. So you wonder like all these research and recommendations, but we're still struggling with one of the first steps of adjusting.
1: If you just switch the thermostat a little bit, you might have <laughs> your solution. <laughs> um, I wanted to go back to this aspect of, of your the evolution of your perception because I think that there's something that I felt especially when I was a trainee, where we feel like thermal regulation is sort of the nurse's job. Uh you feel like, oh, the nurse is gonna keep the baby warm. Like I'm I'm here for the heart rate and the breathing. And and the way you describe this, it's interesting how it it sort of almost like a boomerang, right? It sort of came back on your lap as a junior attending where you realize like this is something that we as physicians and as providers have to really pay very close attention to this attention to. This is not like Cutting the cord or clamping the clamping the umbilical cord where where really it's uh, I can let somebody else take care of this right um, what what would be your advice for for trainees and for people who are young in their careers about some of these things, thermal regulation being one of them, but also all these other things that sometimes we say oh that the nurse takes care of this, and i don 't really pay attention to too much of that
2: I think one of the things that we need to embrace as physicians and particular trainees also is. Neonatal resuscitation is just not providing respiratory support to a baby that's struggling to breathe. Neonatal resuscitation starts also with thermoregulation. And even if a baby is a term baby that doesn't need neonatal resuscitation, just doing the skin-to-skin or or maintaining thermoregulation is a step on neonatal resuscitation. So you're technically providing neonatal resuscitation to this baby. The concept that the baby is fine and we just need to examine him and just leave, I think you're bringing up a good point. It's the responsibility of everyone in the delivery room to make sure that this baby is warm. If the baby's fine, just take him to the mom and let her enjoy these moments. Uh, but I, I agree with you; it's 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 a joint responsibility, not only the nurse's responsibility.
0: You mentioned something that, especially when we are being attentive to the preterm baby in golden hour, but I see this happening in the newborn nursery all the time: um, thermia and you know dysregulating in the other direction um and tell us a little bit about the adverse effects of that i think when we think about it most strikingly is uh in the baby that we're trying to keep normothermic or you know moving towards cooling for therapeutic hypothermia but and so we know there are risks to hyperthermia in that situation but even just to the certainly to the preterm but the term newborn um in hyperthermia I think
2: definitely you're we're talking about both aisles right we're trying to avoid hypothermia but also not trying to induce hyperthermia and beside I mean hyperthermia obviously would lead to tachycardia obviously would lead to difficult transition and when you when with tachycardia, it just impairs the, the cardiac filling of these babies and can lead to issues with also with perfusion. So we have to pay close attention to both. Now, not a lot of studies have uh, looked at hyperthermia and normal-term babies, so I can speculate w- what the outcomes would be. But obviously, hyperthermia in a baby with neonatal insphalopathy is <laughs> detrimental. Uh, but I think maintaining the baby in the eothermic range is the best practice and implementing hypothermia measures to prevent hypothermia with the caveat that we have to keep close track. I mean, one of the things that when we started implementing the golden hour here, we paid attention to with preterm and term babies is documenting the temperature in the delivery Mm -hmm. room. Because what usually happens is you document the temperature on admission to the NICU, and then- It's too late at that time. Yeah, right. And even though they got cold in the delivery room, they got cold in transport, So we started implementing, we need to document the the temperature in the delivery room because we need to know what these babies are doing. Are we providing practices? And this applies to preterm and term. And then once we document in the delivery room, then we documented an admission to the NICU. And this way we can gauge at what point there is a disconnect or something that needs to be fixed.
0: And I think Ben is going to want to move into the golden hour practices. But before we do that, um, I don't want to miss the the, the component about resuscitation um, and how hypothermia affects our ability to to resuscitate effectively.
1: So before we even get into this, because I think when we're talking about, but you're talking, I mean, if if we're talking about resuscitation, I was going to ask in the delivery room, um, the, the interventions that we have, just for the people listening, I'm sure everybody knows this, so I'm just going to get it out of the way. You have your resuscitation table, which has a radiant warmer, you have a thermal mattress that you crack open and, and generate heat. And then we have these plastic little wraps or bags that we put the preterm babies in. I've seen so much crap being done in the delivery room with the mattresses, with the the bags. People like... I think every institution pokes a different hole in the in the in the therm, in the in the plastic bag. Um, that can you give us what how you would set this up and how do you how do you bring a baby to the resuscitation table so that it's done in the most optimal conditions?
2: So when are you talking more about preterm or term?
1: Or- yeah, yeah, I'm talking. I mean, in this case, I would be talking about preterm because I think I want to hear what you do with the mattress and the plastic bag and so on.
2: You know, when we were talking about the golden hour, it took a lot of discussion. So um, it's it's a very it's very interesting and it, it, different people do different sequences, right? Um, but what we decided to do is we decided to uh, have the plastic back. So if you're going to do delay core clammy on a preterm baby, you know the max heat maximal heat loss happens in the first ten to 30, 20 minutes of life, and head is big portion of the heat loss in premature babies. So what we've decided is we drop the plastic bag thoroughly in the operating field at the discretion of the the nurse, the surgical nurse. And then OB, if they're going to do the late core clamping, they put the plastic bag around the baby. And then do the cool the core clamping. Obviously, you have to have a pre-warmed incubator. You have to have warm towels. You have to have a warm, pre-warmed head ready for the baby. And we can talk about the plastic lined heads versus the knitted heads and what's what 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 which one is superior, but all of these has to be have to be pre-warmed. So yes, I think the plastic bag, another thing is you put the thermal mattress, you crack it, you get it ready because it generates heat within seconds, and it is, actually this heat can last for two hours.
1: Two hours is what I heard as well, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. and you put it in in the, ready for the baby in the incubator, and it, the baby in the plastic bag, the thermal mattress has to be outside the plastic bag. Now- Several studies have shown that the combo of plastic wrapping or plastic bag and thermal mattress can lead to hyperthermia, and that's where we came with check the temperature in delivery room, check the temperature on admission, make sure that this is not happening because also this is detrimental. I, I can talk about one of the funny challenges that we had is if you weigh the baby in the delivery room, would you subtract the weight of the plastic bag? Because <laughs> it, it counts in these tiny babies. And yeah, we, we actually went so crazy and we started weighing these plastic bags to, say, to see how much they weigh and subtract it from the weight of the baby. But just to, to, to the point again about the plastic bag and the thermal mattress, you really need to collaborate with your the OB colleagues. And they were very kind of accommodating this practice in the unit. Now, if the baby doesn't need a delay core clamping, you can have the plastic bag at the radiant warmer and just transfer the baby to the radiant warmer and put in.
1: Yeah, but you're right. I mean, we are, we, um, we're reviewing so many papers that are, that are recommending delayed cord clamping. Yeah. I think initially, to me, delayed cord clamping was 30 seconds. And then we had a discussion with a Noob Katheria who, who really said 30 seconds almost should not even be considered delayed cord clamping. We were looking at 60 seconds. And as you said, the first few minutes are so precious that I love the idea of dropping the, the plastic wrap, uh, on the field so that the, the surgeons can actually put the baby in it, uh, until the cord uh, is being clamped. Do you put the baby's head on the mattress? That is something that I've argued with my colleagues so many times. Do you? Is the head of the baby on the mattress or outside the mattress?
2: I, outside the mattress.
1: Outside the mattress. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: I'm going to reverse it and say, uh, did Nuka talk about resuscitation with intact cords? Because that's another game changer, right? Because <laughs> these babies will, cha- will stay at the perineum after delivery and you'll do the resuscitation. Yeah, right? So...
1: Yeah. And and I think um I I we did he did speak about this obviously and and I think this is the optimal way of of being there for the baby and in a family centered manner and I think we're gonna have challenges in terms of normothermia but I have a paper that I'm actually due to review that actually reports how implementing delayed cord clamping and so on actually did not affect uh, how uh, providers could maintain uh, normothermia and so I think as this practice is becoming more prevalent, it's going to be very interesting to get that kind of data to show how um, it does not need to compromise um, the, the, the thermal regulation of the baby. I'm actually pulling the paper. It's a letter actually in the archives of disease in childhood and it's called Thermal Care for Preterm Infants in the Delivery Room Has Not Been Compromised Since the Routine Adoption of Delayed Cord Clamping in Our Unit. And I think these experiences are going to be so valuable to make us more comfortable to go closer to the operating field or closer to the perineum and do all the work that we need to do right there and then. And obviously, Anoop was very... Um, Sharp in his answer when he said that we're talking about babies where extensive resuscitation is not needed. You're not putting in lines and doing uh, and doing chest compression on the perineum. He says, but there's all these babies that need just a little bit of CPAP and then they're good. These, this you can potentially if you bring your NeoPuff close to the the delivery site, then you can you can probably do this. And he obviously said if you if you need an extensive resuscitation, then obviously you take the baby to a proper resuscitation table and you perform your resuscitation there.
2: Yeah, so thermoregulation has evolved through history, and as we understand the physiology and if, uh, if we continue to study the core clamping and resuscitation with intercore clamping, I think we need to be creative about maintaining euthermia in these babies, and it shouldn't be a barrier. And it sounds like papers are coming out saying that it has an effect, um, thermoregulation in preterm babies.
0: But you, you did bring up an interesting point, and I'd love to hear more about the HATs.
2: Yeah, so there's been a lot of studies about use of plastic lined hats, knitted hats, use of hats with poly um, polyethylene plastic wraps, use of plastic wraps that cover the head, um, and the recent meta analysis showed that plastic hats can are essential because they prevent heat hypothermia. We started using plastic lined hats because studies have shown that they're they are superior to the knitted hats, and uh, we've seen good results and. Um, you know, the largest surface area, the head is the large surface area, and most of the heat loss and preterm babies happen through the head. And so, uh, always when when delivery room, I always say, put the hat on, put the hat on, put the hat on. Don't forget it. Uh, it's the first step before you start doing anything. And uh, uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting concept.
1: You know, you're saying it too much when they start making T-shirts for you that says, put the hat on. That, that means you've <laughs> said it too much. But it's interesting because, you know, I was recording uh, our incubator podcast in French uh, yesterday with Gabriel Altit, who's uh, practicing in Montreal. And we were talking about uh, delivery room management on one of the papers. And he was saying how the plastic uh, coverings that they have for their ELBWs in Montreal actually is more like a poncho. It's more like, has like the plastic and the little hat that they put on, which which obviously then goes back to your point John of having a, a a head covering that's made of plastic. So I think that's very interesting to see to see the variability. And again, if you're a loyal uh neonatologist and you practice in one institution for such a long time, you don't know all these other things that are being done in and around the the country. So that's kind of that's kind of cool. So let's go to golden hour because we've talked about golden hour and I think golden hour has become like it's it's become a metric. And I dislike that so much because it is an approach to the care of a, of an extremely fragile newborn. And now it's sort of almost become this sort of checkbox of like, what time did we come in? What time did we finish doing this? What time did we finish doing that? But can you, first of all, give us some context as to what is golden hour? Why is it important? Why are we, why are we even doing this?
2: Actually, I, I, love, I love this question, Ben. And to your point, sometimes we... Worry so much about numbers <laughs> and focus so much on getting everything done, getting the isolate closed within one hour, and something that we have also encountered. So the golden hours is, is a simple concept: is standardization of practice provided to babies in the first hour of life. But I always teach and always say that it's not only about the first hour of life. It's making sure that everyone knows their role and everyone is assigned a role. And it's like an oil machine that's working very smoothly and efficiently uh, to provide the care the baby needs. Now, I don't believe that there's a, like, kudos to all the centers that are able to have the golden hour and the isolate closure within one hour, but that's not the goal. The goal is to have clear role assignment, have an oil machine of what needs to be done for this baby from the time the baby is born until the isolate is closed. Now if you do everything efficiently you with the application of the golden hour you can avoid hypothermia, hypoglycemia, you can get your lines in quickly. It's I think the goal of the golden hour is more of a alerting people that things need to be done efficiently and quickly in a safe way and not really bother so much about we need to close the isolate in an hour because one of the funny stories or one of the funny things is you can close the isolate, but then open the sidewalls and continue doing your stuff and just document that it was closed within one hour. But that's not truly really golden hour. But just going back to the history, because I love history and you guys brought up the history, the golden hour was actually adopted from the adult trauma and first introduced to neonatology in 2009. Uh, and since then, it has continued to evolve. And more and more aspects are being included in this golden hour, uh, including the hypothermia approaches, including starting uh, fluid through a PIV, including um, transport uh, shuttles or transport isolates into how quickly can you get an x-ray? Because sometimes you're ordering an x-ray and you're waiting there and the tech is going to the emergency room or going to the adult. uh, And you're like waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, So it's all about overcoming these barriers, making sure that priority is given to these tiny, friable uh, sick babies.
1: And so, um, I think the golden hour, we, we should probably have John back on for a whole discussion on golden hour. But I think in terms of the thermal regulation, um, it feels like, um, we do these spot checks of like, I'm going to, and, and sometimes these spot checks for golden hour purposes where we check the temperature. I guess on admission, sometimes that's what some people require. We do one check and then and then we say, okay, yeah, 30, thirty-seven seven two, and let's begin doing lines, right? And now it's like, well, what's going to happen to that temperature after you're doing lines? And so you mentioned already one thing that was so valuable that you said, just check the temperature in the delivery suite. What is your approach to? Because the goal, really, I mean, let's be honest, the goal is not to to play with the numbers. Who cares if you if you can check the box on the freaking piece of paper. The goal is to maintain normothermia. And so how has your center evolved in terms of uh, the approach to golden hour, not just to quote unquote, make golden hour, but also to make sure that the baby actually remains normothermic throughout the admission process?
2: So I can tell you we're one of the busiest delivery hospitals in the States. Uh, we have a very active fetal center and uh, a lot of pre- premature deliveries. And we uh the golden hour, once it started uh in our center, we had a lot of buy-in from everyone involved, starting from the OBE to the NICU, to the nurses, to the fellows, residents, physicians. And you're bringing a good point, Ben. I just want to go back to one point that I, I really feel passionate about is when you set your OR temperature or the delivery room temperature, that doesn't mean that this is the temperature of the delivery room. You have to... Check the ambient temperature, you have to make sure that because you can set it up at 20, 23, but the actual reading is not twenty three. Um, and
1: check- we live in Florida we know we know that the, what you said on the thermostat is <laughs> it's not, not the temperature Because
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, that's one thing that you, you can miss, but uh, uh, the reason why we started checking temperatures in the room because we really wanted to see where's the disconnect, why these babies get cold. And once we check the temperature in the delivery room, as soon as we hit the NICU, we check the temperature again because we want to see is our transport efficient in keeping these babies warm. Um, and then the thing is with the golden hour, if you're able to have an experienced provider place your central lines um, in an efficient way, have the radiology tech come, grab your X-rays, confirm your lines, close the isolate. It's not about the golden hour at this point. It's more of a, how can we get this baby that's lying under the drapes, waiting for 20, 30 minutes for an x-ray to be done in the isolate with the humidity and the temperature this baby needs. So, and then, so we started looking at admission temperature, delivery room temperature, and temperature after we place the lines, after we close the isolate, because this way you can track where, what's the problem. And with us getting the x-rays to the bedsides, with us having the experienced providers placing the central lines, we were able to decrease our hypothermia rates from 40% to 20% by by more than half. But it also gave us a lot of insight about the whole process and where the problem is, is. And it's an evolving process. So things change. You have new learners, you have new nurses, new fellows, new uh, residents, and it's The the thing is, you need to continue education. You need to provide continued education, refreshers and reminders to everyone.
1: Do you uh, approach a delivery different? I think this is something that we sort of alluded to. You've mentioned this before, but I I think we should just like go uh, nip it in the bud and just, are you more concerned about thermal regulation if you're going to a vaginal delivery versus a C-section?
2: I would say yes. (laughs) Um, I think operating rooms are a little bit cold and they are still cold. And uh, I... It, I mean, as I mentioned before and alluded to the survey, an international survey that showed only 50% of the operating rooms in the United States adjust their temperatures. Even in Europe, it was one of the surveys that came out that showed this also still a problem. Uh, but yeah, I pay more attention when in the operating room, uh, understandably because of uh, the potential that these rooms might have um, cooler temperatures.
0: Um, I have a question. I'm particularly interested in the golden hour when you've identified that a baby's fallen out of range and the corrective steps. So I think people say, yeah, we got an abnormal temperature and there's this potential knee-jerk reaction. We may not have discussed it as a team. Someone took it upon themselves to do some sort of corrective measure. And then we sometimes see these swings in temperature, which we know are is probably the worst case scenario for the smallest babies. So is it part of your protocol what the corrective measures look like especially in particular to how it relates to temperature.
2: That's an interesting point, Daphna. It's it's not part of our protocol, but you're bringing up a good good point is the swings in the temperature from Baby being cold to someone taking it because sometimes people just take it on on their own and just try to fix the baby's temperature as quickly as possible. And we know that this is also not good. So, yeah, I mean, we talk about gradual rewarming of these babies because these big swings uh, from hypothermia to hyperthermia, because if you're warming them very quickly, you can overshoot and lead to hyperthermia. But again, as we always speak, the best way is to avoid it and avoid hypothermia and avoid severe degrees or worse hypothermia uh, by being cognizant about the temperature and keeping taps on it all the time.
0: And i I also love to hear more. Um, obviously, you have alluded to this. How important the education around golden hour, and not just the tasks, but the the rationale behind the steps that we do. Um, in in my experience, in lots of places, people say, "Okay, these are the steps. We're supposed to get the fluids in. We're supposed to get the antibiotics in." But this final step of getting the top down is actually critical to thermoregulation and humidity. Which is goes hand in hand, the humidity piece with maintaining and especially consistent temperature, you know, with, with thermoregulation. So I think a lot of places have done a good job outlining the tasks, but maybe not the rationale. And so I, I'd love to hear how kind of you've tackled that from an educational perspective.
2: It's easy to say, these are the tasks, these are the role assignments, we need everyone to do this, and people will do it, but after some time, they'll forget. But if people understand why they're doing this, why do we have to do this, what effect does this have on the baby, short-term and long-term, they will embrace the concept, and they will keep that concept and also teach their colleagues. So when we were planning to roll out this golden hour, we did a lot of education to the nurses about the importance of being expeditious and efficient, all the steps to the fellows, to the residents during their orientation when they start neonatal resuscitation rotation. But also we did it to the RTs, to the pharmacy, about the importance of sending up these fluids quickly, uh, we implemented warming of the IV fluids, which is one of the concepts that's very important. Uh, not a lot of data published about it too, but it's it's a common sense of you, need, you know you can give a baby cold IV fluids and expect the baby to keep their temperature. And then the heated humidified gas. Again, the recent meta-analysis didn't show a lot of didn't show robust benefit or certainty behind this practice, but it's one of the things that we also focus upon is if the baby's on CPAP and you don't have a heater and you're providing this cold air to the baby, the respiratory tract is one of the systems that can lose heat. So again, here comes the education for the respiratory therapist about importance of providing the heated humidified gas if the baby's on CPAP, obviously not intubated. And as I mentioned, the fellows, the residents, it always becomes tricky because people like to practice like placing lines. But again, if you have a, an experienced provider that placed the lines, you can place it efficiently and close this top in a good, in a timely manner. But if it's a training opportunity, then it becomes a problem because this can lack for quite a bit. Um, so the other thing is we talked about radiology technicians of why they need to come to the bedside and we implemented this uh, golden hour code in the radiology order so that they are alerted that hey this is this is a high this is a priority this cannot
1: yeah this is not just like checking the line on a baby that's been here for two weeks like this exactly. is a golden hour uh-huh that's so good i'm taking notes by the way people don't know but i'm like writing down all these things these are awesome
2: so essentially don't go to the emergency room to grab an x-ray on um, on someone that's Obviously, every, every patient needs a, like expeditious care, but this is a priority. So once we place this goal in our code, they come immediately and expeditiously to the bedside to get the x-ray. Sometimes they're waiting before the baby comes down. Uh, but we also explain the rationale uh, behind it and why this is important. And I mean, it's not it has been nothing but wonderful with everyone understanding the pathology behind it, the physiology behind it, and why these babies are at risk, and everyone Kind of accommodating it, and also in big institutions with the turnover of the staff, we also maintain this regular educational uh, series for uh, everyone involved in the care of these babies.
1: I would love to get your PowerPoint on thermoregulation. It sounds okay. like it's a there great one um, and you mentioned I'm assuming you mentioned all the things that we've talked about and you mentioned mortality is there? is there um this is now very much not objective but when you do this education component with the medical st- students the residents the trainees the nurses is there one aspect of their more regulation that when you mention the risk people are like oh my god i didn't know that like is there what is the one that usually gets people to just have this realization
2: so i think ben um ivh is one of them even though the evidence is again not strong behind it but also respiratory distress I always say that if a cold baby, you cannot transition well, so might have worsening issues with respiratory distress, distress metabolic acidosis, coagulopathy, and uh, one of the funny things just outside the preterm babies, all these cold babies that come from the nursery and get a sepsis evaluation because they're cold. If you really track that the, the, their stay upstairs and or the nursery, you can say, oh, this is more environmental. It's unlikely to be. Um, Sepsis, uh, or concern for sepsis. And so, um, the one thing, I think the big thing is, yes, they get cold and we teach them that there's a risk for short term morbidities, including IVH, respiratory distress. And these are the things that really, uh, um, catch their attention. And I think laptop, I just, not, like, lagging behind about, uh, uh, The study that just came, that came a while ago and showed, Laptop actually showed that there is 28% increase in mortality for every one Celsius degree decrease in temperature. Um, And that the chances of ill neonatal death was 1.64 fold higher in infants with admission than 36. And I think this is one of the cliche statements I state, uh, and we state to the learners, and it immediately catches their attention.
1: Dr. Laptook from Brown, and and just I want to say this again because I that's something that I reference as well. That one degree of hypothermia equals twenty eight percent increase in mortality. And I think even if you look for variability, because I've looked at what is the range, I think the lowest number I've seen is like even ten percent, where like so even ten percent from like ten to twenty. This is insane, and we're talking about yeah, and we're talking about one degree in uh, Celsius, right? Right. My last question for you, John, uh, we could keep talking for hours, but my last question to you is, how important is it for providers to get familiar with the technology that is available around them in order to be able to be proficient at maintaining normal normal temperature? Because I've seen many times where some uh, as a fellow, I had no clue how the freaking temperature probe worked. I didn't know how the temperature was being measured. I didn't know that there was uh, f- free uh, thermometers that we could use, and, and so on and so forth. So, in your opinion, how has your understanding of of the tech that is available to you allowed you to be better at maintaining normothermia?
2: You have a lot of aspects. You have the radiant warmer, you have the temperature probe, you have the transport isolate or transport shuttle, and then the baby. I think. That brings into account, or brings the importance of pre-delivery huddle, where the fellow or the physician or whoever in charge preparing for the delivery huddles. Once, I mean, it's not always possible in uh, every case, but if you know that extreme a golden hour baby or extremely premature baby is being delivered, if you huddle and talk, start talking about what needs to be done. Go up to the delivery room or the operating room, check your equipment, familiarize yourself with the equipment turn the, the radiant warmer on or the incubator on. That's a key, right? You can't be reactive. You have to be proactive and be prepared before these babies arrive. So that's one aspect. And I just want to point about, point about one of the important things that we encountered and a lot of tends to be overlooked is the frequent transfer of the babies between different beds on admission. So you resuscitate the baby on a radiant warmer, then transport the baby to a transport isolate and then weigh the baby on admission and then transfer the baby to the isolate where the baby is stay. So one of the things that you really need to pay attention to is these frequent transfers can lead to heat loss, whether it's evaporative heat loss, whether it's convective heat loss, whether it's radiation heat loss. So how can you overcome that? Is using whether it's a transport shuttle to keep this baby warm. So you transfer the baby from uh, you, you resuscitate the baby in a convertible isolate and then connect the shuttle, take the baby out down to the NICU and this is the baby's bed and you can weigh the baby on the bed.
1: Yeah, that's what we've been starting to do in our institutions where we resuscitate the baby pretty much in the isolate that they will be placed in in the NICU. So so yeah, that, that's making a huge difference.
2: Do you guys have issues with isolate
0: uh, shuttle space in the operating room? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> Less so in our new facility. We are very fortunate that, yeah. that, that yeah. it was designed in such a way that we have way more space than we did before. Yeah, yeah. very lucky. Um, I know we're getting to the end of the time together, but I would be remiss if we didn't talk about one more aspect of thermoregulation. We talked a lot about the new baby, Um, but obviously there are lots of times where a baby needs a procedure or a baby needs an imaging study. The baby has to leave the NICU or especially during a code situation where we see babies getting cold. And maybe you can talk a little bit about the impact that that has on, on, on babies and our ability uh, to do the things we need to do, I'd say, or be even successful in a code situation.
2: Yeah. So um, I think one of the issues is obviously in a code situation, things are very hectic, but if you have a baby going for certain imaging, let's say an MRI or a baby that's going to have a procedure you really have to think about how can we keep this baby warm during this procedure or during this imaging. I mean, term babies can be bundled, but if you really have to do uh, some sort of an imaging on a preterm baby that has to leave the unit, a transport, um, isolate that or incubator, sorry, uh, that's pre-warmed, then you can have the baby on and get the MRI or the imaging that's needed. Or even if you have to use a thermal mattress, if it's a long uh, procedure or long testing, you can check the temperature. The other thing is in operating rooms, if baby, let's say baby needs a surgical intervention or surgical procedure, the step in, uh, the communication between the NICU team, anesthesiologists and the surgeons is a key before going to the NICU. And I think the anesthesiologist is doing a wonderful job checking these temperatures during the operating room and adding whatever intervention is needed to keep them warm and then checking the temperature as soon as you hit the NICU back, making sure that uh, they are eothermic. During a cold, it's very hectic. It's very hard. It's, it's very difficult to keep these babies warm because your main focus is trying to uh, resuscitate them and uh, avoid any big complications.
1: This was a phenomenal conversation. Dr. Ibrahim, thank you so much for making yourself available, for being such a pleasure to talk to. Um, I had a fantastic time. I took some great notes that I'm going to hope to bring back to our institution. So thank you so much for making the time to be with us today.
2: Thank you guys for hosting me. And I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you for listening to the Incubator Podcast. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nicupodcast, or through our website,